What we know from the data is when you stop having sex, about six months into a sexless relationship or marriage, it gets incrementally harder to get back in the game. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is the very fabulous Dr. Kelly Kasperson. She's actually a urologist, so she knows all about what happens down there as a surgeon. And she teaches women all about sex. Basically, women would come into her office every week crying. Their confidence was broken and they don't desire intimacy. So she has been teaching women everywhere the science of desire and female sexual response through our different cycles of life, including menopause. So welcome to the show, Dr. Kelly. Dr. Kelly, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so good having you. And I would also like to say a huge welcome to the Body Agency. We're very, very thrilled to have you on our body board. And we're very excited to work with you on debunking some of these myths that we have. So many myths. About our our bodies, and talking of myths, let's just get into a little icebreaker here. You told me the other day that you had a patient come in who told you that she had birthed a kidney stone from her vagina. You know, it's very it's always humbling, you know, because doctors we kind of we know what we know and we forget what people don't know, and for that it's it's always humbling to be brought aware of oh this is where we're starting. This is where doctors are starting when they're talking about people in their bodies. Is it, you know, we're always told meet people where they are. But if you're at kidney stones come out of your vagina, there's such a huge gap between what you need to understand what the doctor's saying and what you already know. Yeah. Well, I think you should just put the story straight. Kidney stones don't come out of the vagina, right? They don't. They come out no. of your, your urethra, your bladder, which is very close to the vagina. But yeah. women have three holes. We have urethra, vagina, rectum. Yeah, and that's also, people don't know that, right? They don't know their way around their different holes. In fact, four holes, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, their holes. I mean, it's tough. In all fairness, we can't really see it. You know, it's very challenging to see it unless you get a mirror. So, Kelly, you've had a very, very interesting career. And what don't you do? But what we know about you is that you are a partner at a private practice. Uh, You're a urologist by trade. And you're also a sex expert, a sex coach, and you are extremely passionate about sex education. Tell us a little bit about your journey, as in how did you get here? You have a very successful podcast, You Are Not Broken, which you told me got to 300,000 downloads the other day. Congratulations, that's not easy to do. And the topics that you cover are controversial. So what got you from being a surgeon, a very successful surgeon, to going down that pathway of really wanting to educate people out there in the world? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I was, I was out, of, out of training for about eight years, seven years, a seven-year itch, right? They say it's seven years, like you start questioning things. I was just, I was kind of comfortable. Things were getting easy. And I had this patient who I knew for many years, I had treated him for bladder cancer. And she came into my office and she just started crying, just incredible tears over the sadness she felt because she wasn't 
physically, sexually intimate with her husband, who she cares for and loves deeply. She just had no desire. They, they weren't intimate in that way. And she just felt such a sadness. And it kind of it struck me of, I have no idea what to do, how to help her. And then I just started questioning that thought of, does anybody know? You know, I kind of got taught in urology, the, the male perspective, right? And we got taught that women are too complicated. We might never understand them. Those were the things that I kind of took on as fact. And so I started challenging it and saying, do people know? Read a lot of books, started going to a lot of conferences. And then I started having this little voice in my head. And she said, you got to talk. You can't, you're not going to make a difference by seeing women just in your town one-on-one. You've got to talk. The, the need is too great. And so that's where the podcast came from. It's January 1st, two years ago. So it just turned, wow. just finished turning two. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations. You're putting out really interesting content. And I would encourage everybody to tune in to Kelly's podcast. You said to me the other day, we need to stop shooting our sex life. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, when you think about shoulds, like we have all these rules in our brain of like how things should be. And when you really think of should, underlying should, there's always a little bit of shame, right? Of I'm not doing it properly. I'm not doing this right. I'm not good enough. So underneath those shoulds, there's always that layer of of not being perfect or the idea that there is a perfect, right? And it's like anything we think about how our sex life should be, we're comparing. We're comparing to what we think we know or maybe what our friends are doing or what Hollywood is like. It's like Mm. once you can throw away all of that and realize your sexuality is for you, it's for you and your partner to enjoy and the rules are what works for you and your partner. It just, you get the shackles come off. Mm. Yeah. I think sadly, there's a lot of women out there who are doing that, who are shooting their sex lives and putting it down as a low priority. And I know you and I feel the same way about this, that it's a huge part of your life and it's a huge part of your happiness if we can get this right. You spend a lot of your time in your day job as a urologist fixing problems down there. Tell us about what's the sort of most common issue that you have to treat and why. Yeah, I'd say the top, the top three that come to my mind are bladder leakage or incontinence is the medical term for that. The second one would be pelvic organ prolapse or vaginal laxity. And then the third one I would say would be recurrent urinary tract infections. Yeah, let's talk about a UTI for a sec. I just got over a very bad one. They're the worst. They're horrible. I ended up in hospital once. Tell us about that. What First of all, why do they happen? And second of all, when we know one's coming on, what do we do? Apart from get antibiotics, of course. Mm -hmm. So women, people with short urethras, have way more urinary tract infections than people with longer urethras or males with penises. And there's just so much microbiome happening down there, right? The bladder has its own microbiome. The vagina has its own microbiome. The rectum has its own microbiome. What we know is that bugs that are very common and normal and natural, E. coli being one of them in our rectum, are very unfriendly or hostile to the bladder, right? And that's where the symptoms come from. So most, in most cases, there are exceptions to all of this, but it's that the perirectal flora then goes up into the bladder. And we just have a very short urethra. We don't have a lot of barrier. But one of our big protective barriers is a well-estrogenized vagina. And that's why we see urinary tract infections skyrocket in the perimenopause, postmenopause time, because we don't have that estrogen, which is needed to acidify the vagina and promote lactobacillus, both things which kind of 
there are warriors against the E. coli. So time and time again, we get women on vaginal estrogen over and over. It's the number one non-antibiotic you know, treatment, decreases UTIs by 68%. So mm. if you feel one coming on, simple things you can do at home is just push fluids, flush, flush, flush the bladder. Number two, anti-inflammatories really help with the pain. So ibuprofen or whatever, Motrin, whatever your, your anti-inflammatory does. And then if it doesn't kick, because some women will be able to clear that. If it doesn't, please see medical attention. It, it, rarely, it can get pretty severe. Because mm. eventually it can affect your kidneys, right? I mean, it's life-threatening. Yep, it can be life-threatening. Mm-hmm. And why is it that when you have a lot of sex, you tend to get a UTI? What's with that? Yeah, I mean, one thing is just you're mixing around all your microbiome, right? Things get a little messy down there. Fluids go all around and... Sometimes it can be with new partners. Um, semen does tend to raise the pH of the vagina, right? So it can affect your microbiome a little bit. There might be something to that. Some women are just more susceptible to micro trauma, right? If we're not using enough lube or again, our estrogen is low. Sex can cause micro trauma, which can increase your risk of infection. But the, the third reason is just there's lots of fluids all moving around. The microbiomes get kind of mashed mm-hmm. up. And is it true that peeing after sex is something that will reduce your likelihood of getting a UTI? Data's mixed. There's some people that say it doesn't really matter, but to me, it's a very simple thing to do. We do believe in, you know, dilution's the solution to pollution. So the more hydrated you are, the more you flush it out. It certainly is not going to hurt you. Okay. And then thrush and yeast infections tend to go hand in hand with UTIs. Usually if I get a UTI, I'll also then... Once I'm over my UTI, then the, then the uh, yeast infection will arrive. All very lovely. Yeah. Well, and the yeah. reason for that is when you take an antibiotic, it doesn't discriminate, right? It just kills all of the bugs. So it's killing your lactobacillus. It's killing your normal flora. And then your pH rises. Yeast loves a higher pH. Yeast, and then it doesn't have their natural protectors, right? So yeast is just opportunistic. It just sees a wonderful opportunity to get in because you just wiped everything clear with your antibiotics. I see. And then last question in this area of yuckiness is bacteria, vaginal bacteria or BV, bacteria, vaginismus, vaginitis, that one, that's the worst, right? Because it's foul smelling and it's also sexually transmitted. Am I I giving the right facts out here? The sort of three main ones that come from sex. Yeah, it, and it's stubborn. We know the, the, what we call the biofilm, right? Sometimes it'll, and then if you have an IUD, and you might, are you prone? Isn't, you're not automatically more prone to BV, but if you have a BV infection with an IUD and you can't kick it, think mm-hmm. about that tale of the IUD being a biofilm, right? A repository where the antibiotics just can't kill everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes BV can be quite stubborn. Yeah. I see a lot where women, they have BV on top of yeast infections. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you, how do you treat that? Antibiotics again, right? Antibiotics. Yep. Yeah. And then re, again, rebalancing the vaginal pH usually with, with estrogen in a, in a woman who is perimenopausal, postmenopausal. Yeah. Okay. Now onto the good stuff. Let's talk about sex during menopause. Now, this is one of your specialities. I know you're very excited about the fact that sex shouldn't just stop when you go through menopause. And of course, that's the myth that's out there. You know, when you go through menopause, you, you know, I've heard all sorts of things. You dry up, you lose your sex drive. I mean, there's so many things, your bladder leaks, it's all very unsexy, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right, Kelly? 
Tell us everything. It's a societal myth, right? I mean, look at what society's done to the sexualism. We, we sexualize women. I don't think that's fair to begin with. But then what we do is we say, but you're not sexual after menopause, right? So we almost take away women's sexuality just as a society. If you look at the Golden Girls, right? I was just reading the Golden Girls. They were about 55. Same as sex and... Same as sex in the city. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, how far we've come in a short period of time to say, yeah. when you're in your, you know, average age of menopause in the United States is 51. So it's like, most of us are saying, I'm not, I'm not old. Don't call me old. I don't want my life to change. Right. So it's how we're portrayed. It's our body image. You know, how we view ourselves as sexual beings. Like, what do we believe? You know, can older people have good sex? So a lot of it's mind, a lot of it's society. And there are some hormonal changes too. Our hormones do go down. It can affect our desire. It certainly affects our lubrication and the quality of our tissues and the vulva and vagina. I'm mm -hmm. a big believer in prophylactic treatment because I, the reason is I see so many women who they stopped having sex years ago. And I want to move the needle on that. I want to mm -hmm. say, don't come to me after you haven't had sex in eight years. Come to me when you say, I want to do everything I can so I can continue to have a good sex life. Mm. And how often do you get people coming and saying, I haven't had sex for eight years? Because I personally Every hear day. it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. And they don't. And the other thing is there's so lack of, of education and information. They don't even know that there was a different way. Right. They just thought mm. like things got painful. I don't know why. And we stopped having sex. And it was eight years ago. What mm. we know from the data is when you stop having sex about six months into a sexless relationship or marriage, it gets incrementally harder to get back in the game. It can be done. But then we really start bringing out the sex therapist. You might need to do some vaginal dilation, some vibration therapy. So it takes more work to get back into the game instead of just preserving a healthy sex life to begin with. Mm -hmm. So let's say there has been an active sex life. And I mean, what do we, what do we call active these days? Is it, is it once a week? Is it twice a month? Like... Oh, I know. I, I mean, I always, you know, always I, say I, hate, I, I don't tell, like to tell women what this what statistics are because then it's another should, right? Like thirty minutes of exercise and eight hours of sleep and sex two times a month. Like you're, if you make it a checklist, it's not sexy. But mm. they say you know the average married couple or long term relationship couple is probably having sex somewhere between two times a week to twice a month. There's a, I'm going to give everybody a very broad range there. Mm. That's not going to work for me. <laughs> So, okay, but let's let's really get real here, right? You're a mother. I'm a mother. You know, we've got we've got kids. I, I think you have three kids, right? I have two, two kids. Two kids. Two girls. Okay, well, they're lucky to have you, Kelly. Your sort of sex life is last on the list, right? You are a hardworking mother who has so much going on. I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm talking about the general population of working mothers who are in a relationship. Um, and at the end of the day, they've said to me, oh, gosh, I, I'm so tired. All I want to do is have a cup of tea and go to bed and sleep. That's what I want. What kind of advice are you, you know, you layer it on, right? So there's that. You've been in a long relationship with your partner. You've already kind of gone off sex and now you're in menopause what's the guidance? Like, where yeah. do we go from here? Because very, very seldom do you meet a couple who have weathered all of that and now she's in menopause and she's like, I'm having the best sex of my life. I am meeting those people because I have this podcast, but the general population out there is not in that place and we need to get them there. So how do we do that? 
It's, I mean, it's a, such a good question. It's so important. And it's literally millions and millions of people, right? It is. And so mm-hmm. even I, I mean, I'm a, I know that I wouldn't say I'm a sex researcher because I don't do the research. I read it and then I translate it for the average mm-hmm. human. But um, I know all this stuff and I still have to work at a sex life. And it, it's not work like, oh, it's hard, but it's work as in prioritize, right? Mm-hmm. Just like you want to be well rested, you have to sleep. You want a great mm-hmm. sex life, you have to work yeah. on your sex life. I think so many people sit around waiting for spontaneous desire to like slap them upside the cheek. And that's simply not how it works, right? Mm -hmm. The desire we have in our life and in our relationship, we create. We create Mm -hmm. that with our activities 24 hours a day and how we talk to each other and how we listen and communicate and how we prioritize being together romantically as a couple. So Mm -hmm. it's not hard, but it's not easy. What are some of the things that you can really do? Because, you know, again... I like pizza. I just don't want to eat it every night, right? (laughs) So it is work and you need to program your mind because it's all up there in your brain as well. I I think men don't realize often that we're not mechanical beings, us women. We have to be stimulated. There's a lot going on in your brain and you have to be relaxed and clean. And, you know, there's just so many things that we do differently than our partners do. But what are some of the practical things that we can do, do you think, to keep it all going? And as you say, work at it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, great sex doesn't exist in a vacuum. If you are stretched thin, you're exhausted all the time, you don't, aren't prioritizing your health and your pleasure in general. I like to think of the sex problem as like, this might be a great wake up call. Be like, is this really how your life, you want to live your life? right? Mm. Where you're just exhausted all the time. Now, Mm -hmm. caveat, when you've just had a kid, when you've got three kids in elementary school, it's a busy time. Know that it Mm. will mellow out. So it certainly Mm. isn't, I don't want to should on any woman, but it's like, it's a a way to look at your life and be like, what am I doing for me? What am I doing for we in this relationship? And the other caveat is you're never going to want sex that isn't good for you in the first place. And I think a lot of women who say, I just don't want sex, the sex that they're having is such low quality, nobody would want that sex, right? So that in and of itself should be investigated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. You heard it, ladies. Get good sex. Now, <laughs> you did say during menopause, and I really want to keep coming back to this because it's so misunderstood. And a lot of women go through this period of their lives without much help they can tell what the symptoms are, but they have no idea, you know, how to go about treating it, even as simple as leaky bladder, right? When you've mm-hmm. had kids, well, talk to us about that, because I know that's one of the the things that you, bladder leakage is one of the things that you treat. And I, after talking to you, I didn't realize that you could actually have an operation that treats that. I thought that it was all about like tightening down there or something. So, you know, I'm in healthcare and I had that mindset of, okay, we have to just deal with it. But no, then I talked to you. I'm like, oh, there is an operation. So let's just go through some of the symptoms that we have during menopause, like leaky bladder, and talk about what should be done and where should we be getting the help? Yeah. I mean, the good thing, just tying in sex to bladder leakage, there's tons of data saying you treat the urinary leakage and their, her sex life gets better whether Mm -hmm. that's body image, whether that's nobody likes leaking urine when they're having sex, right? But we know treating incontinence is a step that can improve quality of life as far as sexual 
activity, which is pretty cool, right? Not everybody will relate mm-hmm. those two things, but they've done research on it. So two main types of bladder leakage is overactive bladder, urgency. I got to go right now. I know where all of the bathrooms are between me and the store. So urgency, and I leak with that urgency. The other type is stress incontinence. That's your classic cough, sneeze, laugh, trampoline. That's your classic, I just had a 10-pound baby vaginally, right? (laughs) So what we do know is both types of leakage do go up with menopause. One of the reasons is, number one, we lose our muscle mass as we age. Number two, we lose blood Mm. flow and collagen, especially down in our pelvis. So we're just not as strong as we were when we were 25. Interesting. So you don't necessarily have had to have had a baby to have bladder leakage. As you get older, it it can happen as well. And did I hear rightly that you can also treat it with Botox down there? You can treat urgency, so overactive bladder. The overactive bladder part is more of a a muscle spasticity, right? Just like Botox relaxes the muscles in our face, we put it in the bladder, relaxes the muscles of the bladder. It works great. It is a godsend. I'm so happy that they brought Botox into urology because I don't have happier women than the women who get Botox for their overactive bladder. The classic thing they say is, I just have more time to get to the bathroom. Wow. And what else? You said that you were a fan of prophylactics. Did I hear that right? Uh, Are you talking about preventative or like prophylactic vaginal estrogen? Yes, I'm talking about estrogen. And from what I know, and also from my own experience, estrogen is the wonder, the wonder pill. I take it orally. Tell us all about estrogen and give us the basics on it. I mean, does it bring back your desire? Like, what does it do and how does it work? Like, you're taking this estrogen pill every single day. What is it doing to your body? Yeah, it's such a great question. So estrogen receptors, we think of estrogen like ovaries and breasts, right? But like our inner ear has estrogen receptors. Our brain has estrogen receptors. All of our pelvic tissue, our collagen, everything has estrogen receptors. Perimenopause, so the years leading up to average age of 51, being without periods for a year, we get a slow decrease in estrogen to the point where we don't have enough estrogen anymore to create a cycle to get pregnant. Right. That's kind of the big, big global. Like, why does this happen? Because people, you know, I'll get this all the time. Like, well, I'm 54. What can I do to make my estrogen not go down? It's like, well, estrogen is just going down by definition. It's Mm -hmm. what our body does. Right. So the big fear is that estrogen taking it. I see this all the time that people think it's unnatural to take Mm -hmm. it. A lot of people are anti, you know, anti-pharmacy, anti-needing to take anything. I'm super healthy. I don't take anything now. Why do I need to take this medication? Right. And I think that's just kind of, again, a big myth of like, I always like to challenge that natural because I'm like, you drove to see me and you're wearing shoes and you have eyeglasses on because you can't see. All of those things are not natural. Right. But we Mm -hmm. choose them because they improve our quality. They help us. Yeah. Yeah. They help Mm -hmm. us. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, you can't go all unnatural on me on one thing when you're like, you have an electric toothbrush. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I like, I just like to challenge the the thought of natural because women are so adamant on it until they realize like, oh, well, I don't just tell people who can't read well to just not read because it's natural. Mm. Right. So I like to like pick apart the natural because what we do now is we give women estrogen. The most common form is patch. Patch has a, if we're talking about systemic estrogen for hormone therapy versus Mm -hmm. just vaginal. That's usually a cream, a pillar, a ring, which just treats the bladder, the vagina, the UTIs, right? So two different types of estrogen is systemic and vaginal. It's incredibly safe. Most people can be on the vaginal 
I still say most people can be on systemic. There are a couple of contraindications, but the fears of it causing breast cancer and blood clots and strokes, we know is basically debunked at this point where it's incredibly safe. We have data that says women between the ages of 50 and 60 who are on systemic estrogen live on average at least three years longer. Now, if there was something that a man could take where they would live on average three years longer, don't you think everybody would be on it? Yeah, they just on Viagra. Right? They don't live any longer on Viagra. They'd like everybody to be That on. might kill them, actually. That might end their life earlier. <laughs> so, I mean, that's how, that's how healthy it is to be on it, that mm-hmm. we know it extends. Mm-hmm. It's, it's women, again, that young menopause, age 50 to 60, being mm-hmm. on systemic estrogen has been proven to extend life expectancy. We think it protects the brain. We think it decreases the risk of heart disease. We know it decreases the risk of colon cancer, right? So there's so many good benefits. But again, women have two big barriers. Number one, they think it causes cancer. And number two, they kind of struggle with this whole natural concept. But I always tell women this, think about who you want to be when you're 75. Think Mm -hmm. about who you want to be when you're 78. Do you Mm -hmm. want that frailty, that the osteoporosis, the possible dementia and you know mind changes? Or do you want to be preventative? And if you want to, getting on estrogen sooner rather than later, because you cannot start systemic estrogen once you've already reached 70. The, the narrow window is about a decade after the start of menopause. Not true for vaginal estrogen. Anybody can be on vaginal estrogen at any time. I start 80-year-olds on vaginal estrogen all the time. So let's talk about the different ways you can get estrogen. So you mentioned the patch. There's an oral pill that you can take every day. There's the vaginal suppository that you can use. Any other way? Is it in food? Nope, it's not in food. There's phytoestrogens, which are estrogen-like compounds in some plants. It's negligible. Your body doesn't, it has trouble converting it. You know, you'll see that, like, do eat soy or don't eat soy, but truthfully, it's such a negligible amount. Clarify, on the systemic estrogen, it's, skin, so gels or patches or creams, oral, Mm -hmm. or there is a ring you can put in your vagina that gives systemic doses. As far as vaginal options, there's creams, tabs, and another ring. That's that's lower vaginal dose. And which one do you recommend? I I recommend, if you're going to be on systemic estrogen, I recommend transdermal. Two reasons. Number one, when you go oral, you're gonna, it's going to pass through your liver. You have much higher sex binding globulin. We do think it does affect desire because it binds to your sex hormones when it goes through your liver. Number two, a slightly higher risk of uh, blood clots and gallbladder disease when you're on oral estrogen. So the experts are going to say, by and large, if you want the down-to-the-wire safest form of systemic estrogen, you're going to be on a patch or a gel or, again, that vaginal systemic dose. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Now, let's move on to vaginal dryness, okay? Now, the estrogen is going to help with that, right? Immensely. Okay. Is that the biggest thing that you can do for your vaginal dryness? Obviously, there's lube and stuff like that. There's more and more on the market with, you know, there's vaginal moisturizers. They tend to include things like hyaluronic acid, very soothing, great for keeping the skin uh, moisturized. But again, if you want to change your skin from the inside out, you want increased blood flow, great for arousal, right? So that's where the estrogen comes in. If you just want some comfort because you've got some dryness, the topical over-the-counter products are great, and there's a lot of high-quality products out there. But it's not going to change it like the vaginal estrogen is going to change it. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I've been hearing a lot about vaginismus recently, and I'm going to allow you to tell us what that's all about. But my understanding is that it's when the penis physically cannot get into the vagina. And there's about 50 million women in the U.S. alone who suffer from vaginismus. So it's it's a big issue. A lot with happens because of religion or you're, you're in arranged marriage or you're not turned on or you, you physically have a problem down there. Tell us about that and what the solution is. Is, is it estrogen? Is it, is it a special device? Like, what is it? So first of all, what is vaginismus? And secondly, what's the solution? So vaginismus is a tightening of the pelvic floor muscles. So think of everything in our pelvis has to go through a pelvic floor, like a, a hammock of muscles, right? So our urine has to go through bleeding or a baby has to go through, a penis has to go the opposite direction and poop has to go through. So we have all these things that need to go through a pelvic floor. Vaginismus is when that pelvic floor is so tight that it doesn't allow things into the vagina and not just the penis. It could be any sort of vibrator for her pleasure or even tampons um, or other products. So it's, it's not so much the vagina has a problem as the muscles around it are very tight and don't allow passage into the vagina. It can, you can be born that way. A woman can say, you know, ever since I got my period, I've never been able to put on in a tampon. And then you can acquire it where a woman says, yeah, well, my first marriage was great, but now I just, I, it's so painful. Pelvic floor physical therapy is really one of the mainstays. I also recommend a therapist or a sex therapist to deal kind of with the cognitive, like, am I a failure? How do I make this work for me? How do I navigate this in my relationship? All the pieces that come with navigating a life with this condition. So I always think of it kind of as a three-legged stool. We need the physical therapist for the muscles, the sex therapist for the mind, and then the urologist or the gynecologist needs to make sure the skin's healthy, you don't need estrogen, you know, there isn't something else going on besides the muscles. Mm -hmm. And are there any medical devices, in your opinion, that work to help vaginismus? What the physical therapists really do is, is two things. Number one, just dilators, right? Becoming comfortable mm -hmm. with dilators. And it's a way of passively allowing the acceptance of something into your body. And it's a training that has, I wouldn't, I would discourage anybody from saying, you just got to get it in there, right? That's a wrong way to handle it. Vibration therapy. So dilators that vibrate, right? Vibration brings in blood flow. It's also a very nice way of being like, this is non-threatening. It's safe. It actually might feel a little bit good. Just like, a, you know, a massage vibrator on a tight shoulder. Mm -hmm. So those can be things. But putting the woman in control, right? She gets to say when. She gets to say I'm done. She gets all the control in dealing with her condition. So talking of blood, why do we bleed sometimes during sex when it's not a period? Yeah. Number one, it could be lack of lubrication, whether that's low estrogen in perimenopause and postmenopause. Or I see, I see young women. I saw a 21-year-old who came in, pain, who, she was more pain with sex, but also bleeding. And her boyfriend didn't believe in lubrication. And especially given the sex education that we don't have in most mm -hmm. countries of a woman needs arousal, what arousal and blood flow does to the pelvis is it actually lengthens and opens up the vagina and then tips the uterus and cervix kind of off of the back of the vagina. So arousal is incredibly important before she ever puts anything in her vagina. And that mm -hmm. alone is not taught in this country. It creates yep. a lot of pain. It also creates a lot of lack of pleasure. Because when you're touching your pelvis and it's not aroused and it's not getting the signals that turned on, you kind of get disassociated and you're like, this doesn't feel really great. 
right? You haven't taken the time to prioritize arousal. So the other thing can just be discrepancy in sizes, right? There's some women who are small and there's some penises that are big. And it can just be a little bit of trauma on the cervix that Mm -hmm. can cause it. So sometimes when you are having sex and the penis is in the vagina, and let's say it's an unusually large penis, and it starts banging on you, it's banging on your cervix. And how dangerous is that? I mean, I remember being pregnant and thinking, well, this is not good. This is not good. And there's all those myths too, right? About having sex when you're pregnant, but but also having sex and it's banging up against those walls. Is that dangerous? Well, so I'm not a gynecologist, but from what I know, if, if your gynecologist says that you're, you know, you're fine, you don't have an incompetent cervix or a threatened pregnancy or anything where they say you need pelvic rest, sex is perfectly fine through any stage of pregnancy. My, my understanding from the gyne people. It doesn't tend to be dangerous, but you know, anytime we do things that are painful or unpleasant, it tends to make us not want to do it again. Yep. Um, so certainly I, I never want to encourage anybody to have any sort of activity that's painful for them. And mm. changing, changing positions, changing angles, if it's a length problem, again, her arousal and prioritizing absolute arousal before anything goes in the vagina. You can also get a nice little silicone device. It's called O-Nut. I don't know if you've heard of the O-Nuts. Oh, I have heard of O-Nut yeah, and I lovely. really like it. Yeah. yeah, they're great for, you know, length discrepancy. Um, yep. Some vaginas have been shortened via surgery or whatever else. And you just need to kind of put some bumpers on the base of the penis to make it the length match up a little bit more. Okay. And, and just for the listeners out there, O-Nut is something you put on the penis for large penises or short vaginas so the penis doesn't bang up against your cervix. When we're talking about desire, what's your stance on erotica? Love it. Use it. Um, I mean, the thing is, in thinking of arousal, right, arousal and desire is arousal more so. We have cognitive arousal, which is our brain, and then we have pelvic arousal, which is the blood flow down below, right? Both are important for satisfying sex lives. What erotica does is it gets our brain in a sexual context. And again, how we were talking about women, we're not just light switches. We can't just go from a high-powered job to putting the kids to bed to cleaning up the kitchen to sex. We have to get out of that sympathetic nervous system, get back into that playfulness, that curiosity, that relaxed state. And for a lot of people, erotica is the way to go. Stereotypically, because a lot of discussions about sex are stereotypical, stereotypical women prefer reading their erotica or listening to their erotica. There's a Mm. lot of great podcasts now that are erotica because uh, the visual just almost is like too harsh or they don't really enjoy watching other people. But when they can create the story in their head, put themselves in a sexual context, they're a lot more interested in doing the sexual activity. So it's mm-hmm. just kind of a nice, a nice way to transition to be like, it's really important for us to be together tonight, but I got to get there first. Yeah. These are, these are the tools that help me get there. There's a really great app out there called Rosie. I, I know that you know the founder, Lindsay Harper, and it's, it, it is absolutely designed for women's arousal. It's not porn. It's not hardcore. It is beautiful storytelling to get you in the mood. And you can download the app. In fact, if you go to thebodyagency.com, you can find it. And I highly, highly recommend it. It's simple to download and it could make all the difference. I love it. The other thing on porn is most porn is created for male viewing. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. women, have, we have different brains. We have different interests. So just finding a female-friendly porn option 
can be useful because a lot of women are like, no, that's not what I like. But no, it wasn't designed for you, right? It was designed for somebody no, else. No, because newsflash, we don't want to be choked and hit and banged, basically. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a it performance. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's a performance. It's not, mo- most porn not medically accurate. Yeah. So in our last few minutes, Kelly, if you can believe it, we are out of time. It's just flown by. We're going to have part one, part two, and part three as we move this forward. If you could say anything to men, you, you, in, your, in your day job, you treat men and women. And so you're working on the, you're working on the penis and the, the pelvic area for women. Where it comes to sex and menopause, what would you say to men about what women are going through? And what are some of the tips that you could give them? Because there's just, you know, I talk to so many men and some are like, well, what is, what is even menopause, right? They don't even, there's all these myths about it. And so the last few minutes, I would love for you to talk about men, because I don't think that we're going to be really, truly able to move the needle on what our big dream and vision is of truly helping women with their sexual wellness to the end of their lives if we don't teach men. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And I mean, luckily with my job as a urologist, I get to hear the men's, the man's side of things all the time, right? Mm. Which is just a, an incredible privilege to be able to hear everybody's view on things. I would tell men this. I would say, be the lover worth desiring. Ooh. Because here we are, I see it time and time again, a, a man's like, what's wrong with her? You need to fix her. You need to give her more desire. Basically like blaming her and kind of shaming in the first place. It's like, it's your job to say, what does she need? What are her turn-ons? How does she want to be introduced into possi- the possibility of sex with you? And the other thing I want to tell him is the penis is not the star of the show. There's a brain <laughs> attached, there's hands attached, there's lips attached, there's toys that are around. The penis is not the star of the show, which is fantastic news because the penis has its own challenges throughout as men age, right? And if they don't figure out the penis isn't the star of the show, they're not left with any tools to enjoy sex with her with. Mm. And let's be honest, it's a lot easier for a penis to get aroused and stay aroused than it is for us, right? Yes and no. As men age, it becomes harder and harder, right? And they are met with those challenges because they they expect it to be a light switch. They need more arousal as they age too. And what is that age that that starts happening, Kelly? I see erectile dysfunction starts kicking in late 40s, again, generically, um, 50s, 60s, definitely 70s. But mm-hmm. I say that to say people are happily sexually active when they're 70. But the things they need to do then might be very different than when they were 20. But uh, if a man doesn't understand his own body, that erections might become more challenging. They might not be automatic. He might need more arousal. He's going to not be prepared for when his body changes too. Because men's bodies change just like women's do. I'd say women's Mm -hmm. a little bit more dramatic, right? I have a good friend, Dr. Rachel Rubin. She's like, if men's testicles fell off at age 51, like menopause, there'd be a national vaccine. (laughs) And is there a menopause? There is. Testosterone does go down naturally as men age. Well, 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 this has been absolutely fascinating. And I think we need to talk way more about men in the equation. I, uh, I really do. I think it's I think it's necessary and also 
how do we reach men with these very important messages? And ultimately, as we know, at the end of the day, it's all about communication. It's about the man and the woman or the woman and the woman or the man and the man being able to communicate their desires, what they need, what they like in a non-threatening way. My last question to you is about Viagra. This is my very last question because I could keep talking to you all night. I've heard horror stories about men taking Viagra and ending up in the hospital because it just won't go down. Very rare. Very, very rare. Really? Very rare. They have it on the, it's a warning on the box label, but if you actually look at the research on the amount of men who are, who have to get treatment for priapism, the definition of erection lasting longer than four hours is priapism. Viagra is not the number one reason. And is there a Viagra for women on the horizon, do you think? Topically, yes. So Viagra is a a vasodilator, right? So it's blood flow. So -hmm. it doesn't work for desire, right? It works for blood flow. And so topically on the clitoris or on the labia minora, they are studying sildenafil, generic Viagra, to increase blood flow for women who specifically have a blood flow arousal problem. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Viagra is not, you know, the myth is it increases desire. It's not how it works. Mm. Well, speed up that. I have a friend doing the research. I should ask for samples. (laughs) Yes, I'll be the guinea pig. I'll be the ambassador. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Please, please, please do listen to Kelly's podcast as well. I will be on soon. I'm excited about that. And it is called You Are Not Broken. It is absolutely fantastic. And you can go to The Body Agency to learn more about Kelly and our work together in changing the world for girls and women. So, Kelly, thank you so much. You are amazing. Thanks for having me. All right, I'll see you soon, my darling. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotion code to get a 10% discount, podcast10. Thanks for listening.